Welcome to Squawk. My name is Luke. I'll be our host along with my co-host, Dr. Brian Nixon. And if you've been following the trend here with our current episodes, we've been dealing with cults and solutions. We had a little bit of a throwback last week as we went back to the old die method and we answered a question, how do I know that God is good? If you haven't heard that one, you've definitely got to pick it up because we cover a lot of really great philosophical concepts as well as scriptural concepts there. We're going to pick up with our next episode of Cults and Solutions today with the examination of Christian science. We've got another one planned, Lord willing, for next week about the Worldwide Church of God. And we're going to have a guest in for that one who's come out of that background, so you don't want to miss that episode. But in the meantime, we're going to make the rundown exactly as we've been doing where I'm going to give a, a couple of things about Calvary College. Well, excuse me. Well, Brian's going to give a couple of things about Calvary College. I'll give some about my class as well. And then we'll go into some facts about it. And then Brian's going to give us a background. And then we're going to get into the doctrine. That's right. Well, college is going well, Luke. We are now in the English Reformation. Um, we had a specific little dive deep into the life of Richard Hooker, mm. who was the, if you will, the architect of Anglicanism. You know, a lot of people realize that Protestants have various strains and brands and stripes. And so Anglicanism is what we covered this past week, or the next class will continue with uh, more of the English and getting ready to set sail, if you will, over to America and how Protestantism, the other denominations, affected the United States uh, colonies. How was your class, Luke? Really enjoyed this last class. We're covering a couple of different textbooks. The one that really became the central focus this last class was Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. Mm -hmm. And we got to the chapter or the section of chapters where that secret gets discussed. It really is a powerful portrayal of how Hudson Taylor learns to fully surrender to God mm. and realizes that this is where his joy is going to be coming from. This is where his peace comes from. This is where his strength comes from. There's a lot of things that lead up to that. So it's a beautiful conclusion to his struggle. And then the rest of the book that we'll be finishing up next week, actually, because we have a main text and then that's one of our peripherals is going to discuss the fruit of him finally coming to that understanding. Mm. So I'm speaking carefully because I don't want to give that part away. If someone hasn't read that book, definitely an amazing chapter in the biography of a man who was greatly used by God. Yes, he was. So, you know, as we both have the privilege of doing, and maybe it's a dubious privilege of looking into <laughs> some of these cults and the history of them, you know, one thing I'm struck by, how the leader of each of these cults were vastly influenced by events in their childhood. Right. And most of them, for the most part, were untrained, meaning they had no formal training in the Bible or theology. They just all of a sudden decided they heard from God or got some kind of unique revelation. It really is, it reminded me of the importance of being in Scripture of surrounding yourself with reliable Bible teachers, having a humble hermeneutic. And so you look at someone like Hudson Taylor and all these great men and women of the faith who are prime examples of Absolutely. godly, fantastic living. And then, then we stumble upon, particularly in the 1800s, the age of the cults. You know, so many cults were founded in the 1800s. You find individuals who just were kind of, you know, walking to the beat of their own yeah. drum. And so in your research, Luke, what were some of these facts, these little things that you found out about Christian science and Mary Baker Eddy? Great segue, Brian. You're absolutely right. So many of these folks, they're sort of left to their own devices. They're confused and they start doing their own thing. We like to call this part, did you know? Did you know about, and I go through just four or five facts real quickly. Since we're discussing 
Christian science, all of these facts are going to have something to do with Christian science. The Christian Science Monitor, which is a publication that began in the 1900s, just after the turn of the century, began being published in 1908, and it was published for 114 years mm -hmm. by the time of the information that I picked here. Of course, that puts us at 2022. It's now 2023, so I assume it's still going. Mm, it is. And it says, in that time... It won seven Pulitzer Prizes. And if you don't know what a Pulitzer Prize is, it's a prize for journalism that's awarded by Columbia University mm -hmm. for outstanding achievements in journalism. As dubious as that prize may be now, <laughs> there was quite a bit of prestige associated with that in the past. Pretty interesting thing that a place that started out in such an odd space has got some recognition, right? Exactly right. One of the other things I noticed is that there's resemblances between Ellen G. White and the founder of Christian Science. Now, there's a lot of periphery information here. I'm just going to cut to the chase. Ellen G. White's largely, while not considered to be the, the first founder, she's the one that repopularized basically the Seventh-day Adventist mm -hmm. movement. There's been studies that have come out from Seventh-day Adventists have determined that much of what she codified in her writings was plagiarized, mm -hmm. which is an unfortunate thing for them in some senses. Both Ellen G. White and Mary Eddy were semi-invalids as children. Both found motherhood difficult and temporarily abandoned their own infants. Both found extraordinary reserves of energy for speaking and for religious organization. The main difference was that Ellen G. White, the popularizer of Seventh-day Adventism, remained ill for much of her life, whereas the founder of Christian Science had a more healthy adulthood. And number three, the founder of the Church of Christ the Scientist, as they call it, stated that the church's pastor wasn't to be a human being, but was rather supposed to be a combination of her writings, her main book, which was basically the key to health through the scriptures, and the Bible itself. So their church doesn't technically have, quote, a human pastor. It's assumed that that happened because of the pushback toward women pastors mm -hmm. that was present. Quite frankly, it's biblical for biblical reasons, but that's another discussion, which we already had on this podcast. You can go back and listen to, I think, podcast two or three of last semester, and we talk about that. Uh, number four, Christian science has been a prime mover. And this is a surprising fact because a lot of these facts, I don't intend them to be pejorative or negative. They're just facts, right? Mm -hmm. This one is that Christian science has been a prime mover in securing religious exemptions to medical mandates and medical neglect laws. Now, this is something from which many of us have indirectly benefited. It doesn't mean that what they teach is true. It just means this has been a necessary legal component for them because many of the practices that they teach do lead to medical neglect and other things that are much more demonstrable than saying, well, I have personal privacy and right to my own body versus I don't have to take care of people that are dependent upon me, mm -hmm. right? Lastly, the fellow who was the founder of Scientology, much of what Eddie goes into is actually present in his writing. The whole healing through the mind and many of the occult practices and right. things. Yeah, Dianetics in here. and Christian science have you know a weird connection. They really do. I'm going to leave the rest of that part of the history to you, but those are the five big things that sort of popped out at me as I was digging into this research. You know, another one is just for free. If you haven't gathered it already, the founder of Christian science was a woman. Yeah, very much so. And that woman, Mary Baker Eddy, was born on July 16th in 1821 in New Hampshire, a town called Bow. Parents were farmers. Her father was named Mark and her mother was Abigail. She was one of six children, uh, Mary was, and the family grew up congregational. So what we'd call a traditional at that time, a traditional 
denominational families. So there wasn't any kind of dabbling in any other occult uh, type things. Her father later on was a very religious man. What the reports would show that he was stern. He was a disciplinarian. He did become a chaplain for some um, army type outlet things. And Mary had a rough relationship with her dad. He was given to that, you know, stern uh, punishment, my way or no way, that, that type of attitude. So Mary reacted to her father's authority, you know, poorly. She became often sick. Some have guessed, and it's really hard to determine, but some have guessed maybe she had an eating disorder that caused mm. her to be sick. And so her, she didn't really have a great childhood. Um, the family moved to Tilton, New Hampshire, where they continued to attend a congregational church. For those who may not know, congregationalism, historically, it's changed a little bit, but historically was a Calvinistic congregation, very Calvinistic. Mary started to doubt some of the tenets of Calvinism, such as predestination, eternal damnation, and so on and so forth. So as a 15-year-old girl, she's starting to wrestle with the teachings of a hard Calvinism. And and it, I don't want to say it plagued her, but it really concerned her, a mix with bad health, and deep theological um, unanswered questions were things that were floating around her head. Well, she just continued on in her life. She married a fellow by the name of George Washington Glover, and they had a child in 1844. So one year after their marriage in 1843, they had a child. Over the next couple of years, you know, like so many people, as they start getting older, family members die. Her her uh, mother, Abigail, died. Um, but more importantly, is her husband, right after they got married and had a child, he died of yellow fever. Mm. You know, there was a lot of angst and a lot of um, disconcerting, you know, el- you know, events happening in her life. Well, she remarried a dentist by the name of Daniel Patterson in 1873. And this is where it gets interesting. So up until this point, you, you're thinking, well, okay, she's, she's sickly. She had a rough childhood or didn't have a great relationship with her father and her husband dies or in their marriage. So it's, it's pretty troublesome. So what she starts to do is study with a quote unquote scientist. This scientist, his, his work and thoughts are dubious today. We wouldn't call it science at all, but his name was Phineas Quinby mm. and he believed in what was called animal magnetism or he was a mesmerist. And, and basically, this was a proto-scientific theory that was developed in Germany that basically said there was an invisible force found in all living things, humans, animals, plants, you, you get it. And so it was more of a, what I would call an occultist understanding of spirituality. Even though Phineas Quinby wasn't really a religious man, he was trying to show that there was a scientific basis for this. Again, unqualified. There, there really is no modern science that would support animal magnetism in the level that he was promoting it. So Mary started to attend his lectures. She would take notes. She would question him. And then she would pick up her Bible and try to make sense of what Quinby's saying with what, you know, the Bible has to say. She started to, if you will, impose thoughts given by Quinby and other mesmerists mm. upon the Bible. So she, she was placing their thoughts in her interpretation of the text. And it was around this time, you know, she was having more health issues 
And she started to really acquire more and more beliefs about, you know, Jesus as this healer in an animal magnetism type of way. So she claims she was healed with alternative medicine, primarily some form of water. Quinby saw that she was passionate about what she was doing and kind of said, okay, I'm not a religious guy, but if you want to start promoting my ideology with your understanding of the Bible, I, 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 you know, okay, that, that's going to be your gig. And so this is really this infancy of the Christian science ideology that Mary Baker Eddy started to promote. Things were starting to crumble with her marriage. She separated from her husband. It was also during this time that she started to get into spiritism. We won't get into what spiritism is, but it's an occult practice that involves seances and so on and so forth. So reports were that she left her husband, went to Boston, and was seeking mediums and the occult practitioners. And apparently at one seance, she was in contact with Phineas Quimby, who had recently died, and she felt kind of that was some sign, kind of sign or revelation that she's to really pursue this new understanding of the Bible. You know, and let me just qualify here. There are definite differences between spiritism and Christian scientists, but there are some similarities as well. Mm. And so she's pulling, again, from a little bit of this thought, a little bit of that thought. She's pulling from different places and blending them together to create her own what turns out to be religion. But, you know, something that they did have in similarity between the spiritual and Christian science was you know, they both thought that matter was unreal and that all that really exists is spiritual. So it, in a way, for our astute listeners, and of course, you know, Luke, you know, there's there's a little bit of Gnostic, you know, understanding at the base of this. Back to her life, she divorces um, her, her second husband, Daniel Patterson, in 1873, and then really gets serious about her new found faith. So she published her book, Science and Health, in 1875 with the, the subtext, A Key to Scriptures. It caught on. You know, she started off with a thousand copies. And of course, people are always wanting to know, oh, I want to be healthy. I want to be cured of this disease. And they start taking notice. And by the time she started a fellowship, a group of people, she had about 800 plus followers, people that were uh, listening to her teachings. And like so many of these other folks, she wanted to get back to a primitive understanding of what Christianity was, meaning just very much Christ-centered, which on the surface it sounds, that sounds great. But of course, she was imposing her thoughts from all these other things she's picking on and reading them in to Jesus. She wasn't concerned with the real Bible. She was concerned <laughs> with the, the Jesus she was, she was trying to recreate in the Bible. So she married once again. A fellow by the name of Aza Gilbert Eddy in 1877. She didn't want a Christian marriage this time, so she was married by a Unitarian minister. And they moved to Boston, and they started the Massachusetts Metaphysical College. And, of course, it was also at this time she started becoming a little bit more interested in Hinduism and would pull a little bit of Hindu thought in everything she was doing. So, again... She's doing the smorgasbord of things and mixing it in to what she believes and what she's discovering within her ideology. And her goal around this time was to build a building. You know, we're going to build a building for the Christian Science Meeting. And she said, 
this building is going to be dedicated to the master. And that master, of course, is Jesus. It's not the Jesus of the Bible, but it's the Jesus of health and healing. And her cult began to grow. I personally, Luke, have stood right in front of that building. Um, it's a beautiful building. It's massive. Um, when I visited Boston, um, and you just go scratch your head and go, oh my gosh, you know, and, and Luke, as you know, we've said this multiple times, you know, you step back and you look at some of this and you go, it's fascinating what people will believe. And, you know, Christian science is, is, is definitely one of those that you just scratch your head. But she started to work towards the building. Her husband died in 1882. So again, she, she didn't have a good track record with husbands here. And then it was in 1888, she goes, one of the ways we're going to get my ideology out and get my book out is to start Christian reading rooms. And that's exactly what she did. I think to date, there's over still 1,200 reading rooms across the country. There's one right here in Albuquerque at least. Yeah, that, that you could go and read, you know, her books. And now they have newspapers and other things. So they were reading rooms and they were these casual settings where you could catch up on the news of the day, but also, interestingly, have her books and someone, a practitioner there who would gladly share, you know, about Christian science ideology. And then in 1908, she founded the Christian Science Monitor, which you had had mentioned. And then she founded the Christian Science Journal in 1883. So the latter part of her life was developing and, if you will, evangelizing, promoting her new constructed faith or view of of faith. The latter, latter part of her life was just like so many of these people we've talked about. She was in legal problems, you know, lawsuits where people saying, this doesn't work and what are you believing and what, what is this? Of course, medical doctors were questioning her about what she's telling her practitioners and people that are following her. So controversy consumed her in her latter days. And then she died on December 3rd, 1910. And um, as you pointed out, probably one of the lasting legacies other than her book, which people still read to this day, interestingly, but is the Christian Science Monitor, which has um, gained some respectability in the news world. Uh, I don't know how much it is. I haven't researched and delved deep into it. I don't know how much it is officially connected to their ideology. But as you pointed out, it has some won some notable awards. So most people know Christian science. Like you said, they may pass a reading room that you may say or pass a church and go, well, is that a science? What is Christian science? So you see the building. But I think most people will hear about an article or something from the Christian Science Monitor. So in the end, other than starting a religion, which you're going to talk about the tenets of that faith, I think what the common people know about her is that through her newspaper and their journalism work. So that's it in a nutshell. But again, it's worth pointing out that a lot of these people were untrained. They, you know, they didn't know their Bible. They were not schooled in theology and they quote-unquote, discovered, had new revelations about Jesus or about something, and then took those and tried to form new ideology, a.k.a. new religion. So what have you discovered about what they believe, Luke? Well, I think that was an excellent history. As you may know, just from the style of the narrative, maybe because of the time period and some of the cultural restraints that were normally felt by women, she's not the 
kind of aggressive personalities or the predatorial personalities that you see mm-hmm. in some of the other faiths, if I can call them that, some of the other cults that we've looked at, nonetheless extremely influential in her own way. It's mm-hmm. a different route to power. Mm-hmm. Extremely assertive. I'd say she undoubtedly was highly intelligent, mm-hmm. but extremely mistaken mm-hmm. in the things that she proposed. We're going to talk about some of that when it comes to the doctrine. And so the first thing I want to look at is the tenets of the church. The church claims not to have any doctrine at all. That's their claim. Yeah. But they have tenets, and they have a significant amount of writing by no less than Eddie herself, that if it's not doctrine, I'm not really right. sure what to call it. Doctrine, if our listeners, if you don't already know, just means teachings. If the church isn't predicated on teachings, then not really sure what it's doing. So I think there's some semantic considerations to be looked at there. The tenets of the Mother Church, as it's called, the First Church of Christ Scientist, to be signed by those uniting with the First Church of Christ Scientist in Boston, Massachusetts. So this would come from the era Mm -hmm. that Brian mentioned after the move to Boston, after the building of sort of almost looks like a Gothic basilica, the way the thing is built. It's a it's a beautiful work of architecture, yeah, it and it is quite large. This is where these things were generally assigned. It says, as adherents of truth, we take the inspired word of the Bible as our sufficient guide to eternal life. Now, I'm reading these because I want you to hear how they've packaged themselves. And then we're going to start looking at the deviations from what they've said and what they actually mean, mm-hmm. because this is the element that you must consider when you're dealing with cults. They do not mean what you mean when you say what you say. Mm-hmm. Tenet number two says, We acknowledge and adore one supreme and infinite God. We acknowledge his Son, one Christ, the Holy Ghost or divine comforter, and man in God's image and likeness. Number three, we acknowledge God's forgiveness of sin and the destruction of sin and the spiritual understanding that casts out evil as unreal. But belief in sin is punished so long as the belief lasts. We'll talk about that more later. Number four, we acknowledge Jesus' atonement as evidence of divine efficacious, that means effective, love, unfolding man's unity with God through Christ Jesus, the way-shower. And we acknowledge that man is saved through Christ, through truth, life, and love, as demonstrated by the Galilean prophet in healing the sick and overcoming sin and death. We acknowledge, this is number five, the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection served to uplift faith to understand eternal life, even the allness of soul, spirit, and the nothingness of matter. And lastly, number six, we solemnly promise to watch and pray for that mind to be in us, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's a reference to Philippians chapter 3, to do unto others as we would have them do unto us, and to be merciful, just, and pure. Those are the doctrinal tenets. It was on this foundation that they intended to found this church. There are a number of things where this falls flat. If you noticed, some of the terminology in a couple of those tenets was rather odd, talking about the nothingness of matter, that the belief in sin would be punished for as long as the belief lasts. That's what we're going to dig into, because this is where the worst part of the error lies. As Dr. Nixon mentioned earlier, there's a lot of Gnosticism. You say, well, what in the world's Gnosticism? So that's an ancient belief. It became more clear in the early part of the first and second century 
but it's based on very old understanding and beliefs. And that is matter is evil and matter was created not by the true God, but by some emanation of him that has been so far removed from him as to almost not be considered to be a God at all. And this is how they portray Jesus Christ, that God couldn't create evil, which it's clear that God created matter. So they're saying God is spirit and matter is evil. So spirit good, matter evil. Very simplified view of some of the Gnostic doctrines. This is exactly the kind of thing that Eddie is talking about. Here's one of her quotes. The ego is deathless and limitless, for limits would imply imperfection of some kind. Mind is the I am or infinity. Mind never enters the finite. So she's calling spirit or spiritual things. She's calling that mind. I'm reading this because I want you to know the terms that she is applying. If you remember, L. Ron Hubbard applied the word thetan to soul. So they have their own understanding for which they have coined words or for which they have adapted words to specialized and, until them, non-existent usages. So mind that she's speaking of is not the physical organ that's in your brain bowl. She's talking about mind in the sense of an ideal mind that is strictly supernatural and has nothing to do with matter. So there's a lot of Platonism or things that come from Plato there and this idea of perfected forms that do not have a good representation here on Earth. That's a whole nother ball of wax we can't get into today. But this is basically what she's arguing for, that spiritual is the ideal thing and it never has anything to do with the finite, tangible, sensual realm. And that the person themselves, the ego, that which is the person's primary identity, is limitless. So, the part of you that's you is spiritual. And the thing that you are to do is to become more like the mind. That's the idea. And as you do that, you will be freed from sicknesses and freed from all types of bondage that's created by you being entrenched in tangible things. That's sort of the theme that she's going to be using as she goes through here. Very similar, again, to L. Ron Hubbard, where he's like, you need to free yourself from what you are by transcending yourself and becoming a higher order of being. It's this transmigration, as they call it, this transmigration of the soul up to this higher spiritual level by being willing to repudiate physical things. Buddha was very similar in this as well, as Brian mentioned before. Hinduism also has touches of these types of things, this spiritual journey whereby you set yourself, and they predefine what the self is, you set that aside so that you can become a intrinsically and exclusively spiritual being. But here's one of the problems that pops up. That may be all fine and good, you know, this spiritual concept, but let's hear from the founder a little bit more herself. So in a review article that was published during the time that Mrs. Eddy was alive, it was by the North American Review, a very respectable journal that reviewed a lot of different things in its time. In July 1901, they published an article called The Absurd Paradox of Christian Science. So this is during her age. This is some of the pushback that's happening on her beliefs from a respected, well-researched journal. The journal asserts, Christ required faith. Mrs. Eddy disparages faith, putting it below what she calls understanding and antagonistic to it. Christ specifically commanded prayer in the sense of petitioning a person with a promise that such prayers would avail when offered according to the will of God. Mrs. Eddy thus condemns it. And this is a quote from Eddy. Petitioning a personal deity is a misapprehension 
of the source and means of all good and blessedness. Prayer to a person affects the sick as a drug that has no efficacy of its own, but borrows its power from faith and belief in matter. Now, just to break that down for you, she's saying it doesn't do any good to pray to God as the source of goodness and blessedness because all of those things are already within you and you must basically appeal to this mind through understanding, which is a different thing than faith. And she's saying that prayer is actually a negative thing because it actually causes people to be dependent on the very thing that they're trying to escape. Very dangerous teaching here. There's a couple of other excerpts from the same article that I'm going to read because they're extremely important to understand about her perspective. Gnosticism is present in this quote. She says, God, the only substance and divine principle of creation, is by no means a creative partner in the firm error named matter. So she's right here, she's denying that God made anything material or mortal mind physical mind. He, God, eliminates his own idea wherein principle and idea are not one, or God and man are one, and who can say which that one was? Now, that's a little bit of double speak there, but long story short, she's saying that God is not the one who created matter. Now, here are some more disturbing quotes. So on the issue of the virgin birth, she says this, enslaved or abnormalized by her theory, she rushes in, this is again the North American Review writing, she rushes in where angels fear to tread and indicts words such as no woman or man ever uttered either in belief or unbelief of Christ or his mission. So he's saying that she has a significant amount of audacity in what she's about to say. And when you hear it, you'll know this because it's, well, it's just blasphemous. So bear with me as I read this disturbing quote. Jesus, born of a virgin mother, was more of a miracle to that age than to this. The Bethlehem babe was the nearest approximation since the record in Genesis to the science of being, which is ontology, in which spirit makes man. But she's referring to her science, that the spiritual part of man is what manifests the physical part of man. But man, born of woman, being the usual advent of mortal man, in other words, the way that people are normally born is between a man and a woman, this material belief entered in part Mary's spiritual conception of Jesus, which accounts for his struggles in Gethsemane. In other words, if Jesus had not been given a body by Mary, then he wouldn't have been struggling in Gethsemane. But, says Eddie, it made him mediator between God and mortal man. Then here's the terrible statement beyond the others. A lack of entire science in the advent of Jesus produced its own discord and met its fate in death. So in this instance, she's saying the fact that Jesus was incarnated is the very reason why he was forced into a fate of death. Now, that's completely contradictory to the scriptural narrative, which says that Jesus chose this form purposefully so that he could redeem others who held the same form. In other words, he was made like us so that through dying, his death would be effective to us, born as a man, born of a woman under the law, that he might, what, redeem those who were under the law. So when it comes to these things, she is completely off base. But it's important to know that this is what she means, number one, in her usage of the term science. Number two, in her understanding of the incarnation of Christ, which is foundational. You deny the incarnation of Christ, you are not saved. End of story. The Bible makes that extremely clear. If you don't believe and confess that Jesus is God come in the flesh, you are not of God. 
And so for her to even imply that these types of things were true about the incarnation of Christ is blasphemous, number one. Number two, it's patently untrue, and it's a very dangerous doctrine. But she had other odd things that she would say as well, which points to the invalidity of her perspective. She basically said that women should not give their babies baths every day, that it was a a worthless process. She says the daily ablution of an infant, that means to bathe an infant, is not more natural or necessary than to take a fresh fish out of water and cover it with dirt once a day, that it may thrive better in its natural element. Now, that's an absurdity. So to bathe a baby, which is matter, with other matter is no more profitable than to bathe a fish in dirt, which is also matter. This is literally a classic example of what's called the fallacy of the undistributed middle term. Just because you wash something in something doesn't mean that all somethings are created equal. There's category violations, logical fallacies all over the place in that statement. But she's doing it because she's already committed herself to a particular perspective. She also said that exercise was of no value. In fact, it cannot possibly enlarge muscles. She was saying that the muscles are enlarged simply or are given strength simply through the power of the mind. So all of these things, these results that you see in the real world, well, that's not the real world at all. That's just an illusion, and you're controlling it with your mind. This is very postmodern for somebody who comes from the 19th century. This has the marks of multiple philosophers that came from the past, not the least of which was Descartes. He had some serious problems with reality, and his writings really, they spiral into despair. And so she's obviously been infected by some of those items. Now, that being said, clearly her understanding of who Christ was, what his role was, what the material world consists of, and its reality are completely off base. And as she continues in this path, she becomes more and more unbiblical. And I'll share a few more things, and then we're going to wrap this up. But she says, evil being contrary to good is unreal and cannot be the product of God. She says further, science demonstrates the unreality of evil for the sinner would make a reality of sin, would make real that which is unreal and thus heap up wrath against the day of wrath. So here's a really important thing, and this is probably the most, out of all the things that we've talked about already, this is probably the most subtle. So in their tenets, if you remember, she talked about the concept of sin, and initially it sounded good, and then she said, well, sin is the idea that someone would hold on to the reality of matter and the reality of sin. And again, we find the fallacy of the undistributed middle term in the syllogism. It's similar to saying, all airline pilots are highly trained professionals, all astronauts are highly trained professionals, therefore, all airline pilots are astronauts. Well, that's obviously not true. I created a term, but I didn't distribute the original group to which that term applied, and therefore, I've committed a fallacy, even though it looks like it all goes together. So in other words, just because God is good and sin is not, does not mean that sin doesn't exist. If all is spirit and all is mind and all is good, it doesn't mean that I have to pretend that all of the things that aren't spirit and good and real don't actually exist. And this is exactly what her solution is. It's the way that she seeks to free herself from all of these things that are not mind or spirit or her conception of God is to literally make the belief in those things a sin. And it is not until someone's fully disabused of this idea of their own reality, that's the temporal, sensual reality, that they can be freed from sin. Basically, by pretending that none of it exists, evil doesn't exist, matter isn't real. That's, that's her approach. 
So here's where the subtlety comes down. They're going to talk about sin, and they even say you need to repent from your sin, and you need to turn to God. Now, what we mean by that is that you need to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you need to come to Christ by faith in his finished work as being sufficient for you to be saved from your sin. Your sin is not this alternate belief in the reality of the things that you experience all day. Your sin is literally violations of the goodness of God and his plan for your life. The transgression of the law, some might say, but we're just not talking about just the law of Moses. We're about things that are against the nature and person of God. That's sin. That's why we fall short. In Mary Eddy's world, sin is the conception of those things which consist of matter. When they say you need to repent of your sin, they're saying you need to repent from this illusion of reality that there is such a thing as sin. Sin being all that which is, quote, real in the mortal, but doesn't exist in the spiritual. Now, that puts a really crazy twist on this. When they say to repent of your sin, it's literally going to be you are going to have to repent of anything that anyone tells you about you actually being sinful. In other words, the physical actions and the thoughts that you have that consist of any given number of things that are considered sinful, it's a sin for you to believe that those things are sinful. And the sin they're having you repent of is not the actual actions, but the belief that those actions matter. That's going to immediately isolate anyone who's being given the gospel because the gospel is going to seek to pull them into the temporal realm and lay to their charge the things that they have committed in the temporal realm. Therefore, they're going to see you as the agent that's drawing them away from what they think is God and mind and victory over this illusory existence that we have. So they've basically put themselves in a box in which they cannot be convinced of the effect of the sins that they are committing against God that plague their conscience. Their entire religious construct by which they transcend themselves is to subjugate their personal conscience and the actions that they are committing against God as the entire essence of sin itself and repent from even being aware of those things. And it is in their complete repudiation of those things from themselves that they believe themselves to be set free. It's a terrible, terrible doctrine, and it's directly confining to those who are believing it, to a place of spiritual isolation by which they may never be reached by the gospel. Now, that being said, that covers the majority of the tenets. There's much more. Trust me, there is. But we're basically about out of time. I'm going to share just a couple of other things to give you an idea of trying to solve the sin problem. The whole religion is centered around metaphors whose fluidity undermines its integrity. It's also constructed of beliefs that are extrapolations of conditional events. For instance, it is sometimes said that Christian science teaches the nothingness of sin, sickness, and death, and then teaches how this nothingness is to be saved and healed. Does it make sense, right? If matter doesn't matter, if matter isn't real, then why are you so focused on the healing of the physical body as an evidence of how spiritual you really are? It's a very good question. So, Eddie, being aware of this contradiction, takes this question to task in her teachings from the church and begins to try to answer these or preempt these questions before her, quote, followers, unquote, are able to be confounded by them. So what I'm reading just now was her answer to this. She says, the nothingness of nothing is plain. 
But we need to understand that error is nothing and that its nothingness is not saved, but must be demonstrated in order to prove the somethingness, yea, the allness of truth. It is self-evident that we are harmonious only as we cease to manifest evil or the belief that we suffer from the sins of others. Disbelief in error destroys error and leads to the discernment of truth. There are no vacuums. How then can this demonstration, quote, be fraught with falsities painful to behold? So if you caught what she's saying there, she's saying you need to not believe in all of the things that people are telling you about why your faith in Christian science is wrong. Your willingness to believe them is in itself sin because they're trying to convince you of something that isn't real. So you're again, you're stuck in your little ether of reality. But the Bible teaches that material beliefs do not need to be expelled to make room for spiritual understanding. In other words, we don't have to disbelieve that the physical world exists. And it says specifically, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. They are not of the Father, but are of the world. And the world passes away in the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. That doesn't tell us that we should stop believing that the world exists in order to try to triumph over it. In fact, the Bible says that we're in the world, but we're not of it. It doesn't say that the world doesn't exist. It even says that Christ himself was, quote, in the world, and the world knew him not. So this idea that material things need to be dispensed with entirely, and that we live in an illusion of some kind that's a facet of our own mind, and only as we are set free from this illusory understanding of reality are we truly set free from sin. It's not what the Bible says. It says that you're supposed to mortify the deeds of the flesh. Paul himself said, and this life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul prayed about a thorn in the flesh. Now, these are not illusory items. Spiritual things do not indicate the illusory nature of tangible things. They are both real. They are both true. One is greater than the other, but that does not invalidate the existence of the other. The reason I'm going through all of these things is one of the important reasons why we're doing this cults and solutions is how do we reach people that are in this mindset? And this is a basic problem with a willingness to grasp the importance of material reality in a Christian's life. The Christian cannot escape the world by pretending it does not exist because he inevitably is embedded in it. And anything that is against that idea is irrational inherently. And so bringing people back to the rationality that is scripture is not something that's done through philosophy, even though she is obviously caught up in a number of different philosophies, some of which we've mentioned. But the authority of the word of God about the place of God, the place of the material world, and the Christian's place in relationship to both of those things is what is going to help provide a framework for conversation with people that are caught up in this doctrine. Establishing the identity of Jesus Christ through the scriptures, which they themselves say that they believe, despite the lens that they've put on it, is going to be extremely important. Defining terms such as sin, so you establish the identity of Christ you also go about trying to establish the identity of what the scripture says is sin. Again, not the repudiation of the existence of all things that are material, but actual spiritual and physical violations of those expectations that God has laid upon us to fulfill, that we are incapable of fulfilling and for which we need to be saved. 
this is going to be an extremely important thing because this is going to build the bridge to the conscience that they've been attempting to suppress. And only the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, beyond our wisdom and articulation, is going to be able to reach the heart of someone who is very entrenched in this religion. It's easier to reach someone who's not so entrenched, but the Lord wants all to come to repentance. So if you have the opportunity to confront someone who's in this religion lovingly, you want to deal with the concepts of Christ's identity as articulated in Scripture and not through the lens of Christian science, and the reality of what sin actually is according to the Scripture. And once those two things are established, the Savior and what it is that men need to be saved from, then you have a much more healthy opportunity to have a robust conversation about how to bring that person into the kingdom. So as you consider these things, again, it's our privilege to do some work here, to try to do some heavy lifting for you, to give you some cookies on the bottom shelf about this. I certainly appreciate all that Brian shared in regard to the history. We've gone into some of the factoids, and now we've gone through the doctrine and given you just a couple of pieces that may allow you to reach some people who, before all of this discussion, may have been much more of a mystery to you to reach. We appreciate your time and listening. We appreciate your patience as we go through these various religions. Stick with us because more is coming up. Not only are we going to have the Worldwide Church of God and a guest, Lord willing, next week, but we're also going to start pivoting a little bit out of the cults into other worldviews that aren't technically considered cults, but we're going to look at atheism, we're going to look at agnosticism, and a couple of other things that are worldview considerations that we want to talk about again, to give you some equipment about how to get out there and win these people to Christ. So again, my name's Luke. I've been your host. My co-host has been Brian Nixon. This has been Squawk, and God bless. Until next time, thank you for listening.